0: Would break this book up in the second chapter All those things I just said about who Jesus claimed to be Jesus begins to prove himself in chapters 2 through 12 And uh, they call it the, uh, the book of signs these, The first 12 uh, chapters where Jesus reveals himself And proves who he is in these uh, various signs They're just selected signs because there's a lot more that he did that aren't recorded. But then the last chapters, 13 through the end, has been called the Book of Glory. And this is where Jesus gets very uh, personal, very private with his disciples at the Last Supper. Uh, we find uh, Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, and the resurrection, but it's a very personal engagement that Jesus has with his disciples. But all of John's writing has one central laser-focused purpose, and we find that in the 20th chapter of John, verse 30, where it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you would have life in his name. And so John writes to convince the unbeliever. Uh, He writes to convince the skeptic or the seeker that Jesus is indeed this Messiah, this Son of God. But this book is also a great encouragement for those who believe or who struggle in their faith. And so, let us consider this very first sign, the good news. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Some people ask me, you know, why am I wearing purple today? Don't I know that the Ravens aren't playing in the Super Bowl? And I, yeah, I know that. I'm just wearing uh, the party color today. And, uh, you know, when I think about parties, I can't think of any greater uh, introduction than what Tony Campolo gave in his book, The Kingdom of God as a, uh, as a Party. Uh, and, and in that book, uh, he gives this uh, this experience that he had in Honolulu, uh, Hawaii. Uh, he flew there, and he got there at 3.30 a.m., but for him it was like 9.30, and so he was hungry, and he's wandering the streets of Honolulu looking for something to eat. And there was only one uh, little greasy spoon place to go to, and, and he got a a donut uh, and a cup of coffee from this guy named Harry. Uh, And uh, about 3.30 in the morning, in walks about eight or nine boisterous prostitutes. And uh, they come to sit down uh, near him. Uh, And uh, he said he felt rather out of place. But before he could leave, a woman that was sitting next to him Uh, said, "'Tomorrow is my birthday. "'I'm going to be 39.'" Uh, And her friend responded in a rather nasty tone, and she said, "'So what do you want from me, a birthday party? "'What do you want? "'You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday?' "'Come on,' the woman sitting next to him said. "'Why do you have to be so mean? "'I was just telling you, that's all. "'I don't want anything from you. "'I mean, why should you give me a birthday party?' I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? And Campolo said that when he heard that, he made a decision. He waited until all the women left, and he found out that the woman came there every night at the same time, and he found out that the birthday woman's name was Agnes. And he asked Harry, what do you say we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow night right here? And a cute smile went across his chubby face, and he said, That's a great idea. I like that. And Harry called and told his wife, uh, who likewise was excited, and she said, That's wonderful. Agnes is one of those really nice and kind people who nobody does anything kind for. And so the next night, uh, Campolo brings decorations and crepe paper and has a big sign, happy birthday, Agnes, while Harry's wife baked this cake. and Apparently, word got out, and at 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu packed the place surrounding Tony Campolo. And at 3.30 a.m., Agnes walks through the door, and everybody screams, happy birthday. She was so shaken Uh, And Stunned her legs seemed to buckle a bit and our friend grabbed her to steady her and they all sang happy birthday and uh, There's the cake and so the cake was lit and they sang the song and And uh, the other women were telling her to cut the cake, but she asked Harry if she could keep the cake a little while longer and not eat it right away. And Harry said something somewhat bewildered. He says, sure, take it home if you want. Uh, And she says, can I really? And she says, I live right down the street. I'll be right back. And as she left, all of her friends stood motionless. As the door closed there in stunned silence and not knowing what else to do, Campolo breaks in and says, hey, what do you say we pray? which seemed like a rather strange thing to say in that context, but it felt right. And so he said he prayed, he prayed for Agnes, and he prayed for her salvation, and he prayed that her life would be changed and that God would bless her. And when he finished, Harry leans over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice says, Hey, you didn't tell me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Cam Polo said in one of those moments when just the right words came, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 a.m. Now Harry waited a moment and he sneered, No you don't. There's, There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I would join a church like that. Wouldn't all of us want to join a church like that? Well, Jesus came to create such a church. Our God is a God who celebrates with sinners over sinners, who engages with all kinds of people, and who enters into the celebrations of our lives. And in this chapter 2, we find that Jesus literally becomes the life of the party. It's a wedding party. And here we find that Jesus not only made time for this special celebration, he does literally become the life of that party, and because Jesus proves himself to be such that of life, who keeps a dying party going, we can trust him. And in this passage, we see that Jesus, he's party ready, and that Jesus is a party redeemer, and that Jesus brings the party best. Now, many people have a distorted and false notion of the God of the Bible and of Christianity as being boring. And restrictive, and that God is a killjoy and looks down on anything that might be pleasurable and fun. But here we find that Jesus, in the first miracle, the first sign, comes party ready. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited to the wedding of his disciples. And it says it's the third day, and it appears that it's the third day from when he connected with Nathanael, and here Jesus is gathering disciples, and he's gathered five disciples at this point. There was Andrew, John, Peter, James, Philip, and Nathanael, and Cana is just a few miles north of Nazareth, and that's where Jesus, uh, he grew up in Nazareth, and probably there was a relative or someone that clearly that he knew, and this was a very small town, and so everybody probably came out to this particular wedding, Uh, appears that maybe Jesus' mother was part of maybe some of the uh, support for that wedding. Maybe she was the matron of the wedding. But the point is that Jesus took time to go to this wedding. Jesus was invited, and he went. I imagine that in the 30 years, and Jesus is 30 years old, that he went to a lot of weddings, a lot of traditions, a lot of things that were part of the Jewish culture. But amazingly here... This is the first recorded sign that John gives after Jesus was baptized and inaugurated into ministry. The first event that he recruits his team of disciples and he goes to the celebration. The first thing that Jesus did wasn't that he he didn't take them away into the wilderness uh, and give them meditation lessons or uh, encourage them into the, the uh into an ascetic or tranquil life, uh, he didn't even take them to a prayer summit where uh, he would teach them how to pray. Even as great and as important that is, Jesus took his disciples—the very first experience—to a wedding party, a major cultural celebration. And so here we see that Jesus—he engages freely with humanity, he shares in the joys and the celebrations. The Son of God becomes flesh. And he dwells among us. He dwells in our celebrations. He dwells in our parties, and he dwells with us. I think that is why uh, so-called sinners love to be around Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time eating and partying with them, and he gained this reputation of uh, as a being a party man. And Matthew eleven nineteen says, "The Son of Man came eating and drinking." And they say. Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus, of course, was never a drunk or a glutton. There was never any inebriation or hangovers or intoxication. Jesus was full of the Spirit. Uh, he was above reproach. But Jesus is often found in the middle of these very questionable places and parties. You know, I cannot remember any time that Jesus turned down a celebration or a party or a festival, uh, only unless his life was being threatened or people had evil intention for him. Now we need to know that Jesus is being consistent in expressing God's divine value on celebration and festivity, uh, what may be considered uh, a holy, awesome party experience. Just one New Testament, Old Testament passage should reinforce this holy, awesome party engaging God. Here we find in Deuteronomy chapter 14 about the tithe, one of the tithes of Israel. It said, You shall tithe. And by the way, uh, there are three tithes uh, that we find surfacing in the Old Testament. You have the Levitical tithe, which people gave a tenth of their income to support the temple worship. Uh, there was the poor tithe. Every third year, people gave a, a tenth of their income to create the infrastructure for the widows and the orphans and, the, and basically caring for the needy. But then there was this third tithe, and uh, it's been called the celebrative tithe, and it's here in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Uh, and it says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose you to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, of the firstborn, of the herd of your flock, that you may learn to fear or to worship the Lord your God always. And if it is too fought long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, I'm going to go down then uh, you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Now, can you capture this? This is one of the commands of God to the people in the Old Testament. You are to take one-tenth of your income, Uh, you are to go to the place that God, where he will place his name, and every year you're to spend that tenth of your income on whatever your heart desires, whatever, it says, your appetite craves, and rejoice before the Lord. That's a whole boatload of fun, it sounds to me like. That sounds like nobody out-parties God. Who does that? Where do you find this kind of celebration in any faith? This is the God of the greatest celebration. He is the God of creation, uh, and he wants us to be disciplined in our celebrations, apparently. You see, the God who made us, he made us to be a people that celebrate. We need to celebrate something bigger and greater than ourselves. You know, tonight, millions and millions of people will be watching Super Bowl 50. And uh, they will see these two teams exhibited who have surfaced uh, to to be the, the, the best teams of the NFL. And millions and millions of dollars will be spent. And people will be screaming and standing and shouting and clapping and dancing and Somebody's gonna win, and somebody's going to lose, and uh, somebody's gonna surface as the greatest and the better, and then next year in that competition, that that team will probably be a loser. (laughs) But the Bible tells us that there is only one who is big enough and great enough, who far exceeds all others, to hold our admiration, to sustain our enthusiasm, and to eternally capture our hearts. And it is the Lord our God. You know, that's so. we hear in Psalm 100. You know, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And it says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. It is he. We are his people. and We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his pasture. Come into his presence with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You know, this is the great God that we have. And we are to give him all of our energy, all of our celebration. He is worthy, but he shows us in the scriptures how he enters into our celebrations and how he is worthy of our celebrations. So Jesus comes into this wedding party. He is ready to celebrate. He is there. But he is not only there ready, but he's a redeemer. He's a redeemer of this this celebration. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And so, of course, the wine runs out, and the party was on the verge of a catering disaster. But really, is that really a big deal? Okay. Somebody miscalculated how much wine was needed. Somebody's going to suffer a, a, some little social um, embarrassment. I mean, it's not like people were dying of thirst. Uh, it wasn't people were dying of starvation. Nobody was sick. There wasn't anybody demon possessed. Of all the miracles and all the signs that Jesus chose to begin with, he changes water into wine to keep a wedding party going, aren't there more important things that God, that Jesus, this divine son of God, should be about? Uh, Reynolds Price, he's a professor of literature at Duke University, said, If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, just making up stories about Jesus to reveal his power and glory, who would invent, as the inaugural sign of Jesus' career, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? (laughs) In other words, Christ is saying nobody who would be trying to start a world religion uh, would have the founder start their ministry off this way. I mean, it's so over the top, which reinforces the fact that this is not fiction. But here Jesus, he shows up, and Jesus covers up. Jesus covers up a potential embarrassment, a social humiliation. He covers shame. The financial responsibility for the provision of the party lay with the groom uh, to run out of supplies would be a dreadful shame, uh, filled with embarrassment in that culture. And so Mary goes to her son. Uh, and since this is the first of Jesus' miracles, uh, we must realize that she didn't real, she probably never saw Jesus exercise these kinds of powers. Uh, so we can't presume that somehow she, thought that he was going to fix this. Uh, but she knew that her son was wise, he was resourceful, and that he would care about such things. And so with great confidence, she goes to her son, and she asks him, they have, or they, she tells him, they have no more wine. But in that request, or in that statement, she, Mary is actually asking something more from Jesus. Jesus said, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time is not yet come. And in, in this, there is a gentle rebuke. He says woman, he doesn't say mother. Uh, even though she was his earthly mother, who had given birth to him and nursed him and fed him and raised him and changed his diapers, she could not any longer make such demands on him or think that somehow she had an inside track that she that he would be compliant to. Jesus had now one authority, his father. He had one mission, his father. And so Jesus expresses this correction and it, it harkens back to when Jesus was twelve years old and in the temple and he tells his parents, Didn't you not know that I had to be about my father's business? And so Jesus clarifies his allegiance, but Jesus also fixes this situation. Jesus reveals that this is his father's good pleasure and goodwill to engage. You know, Jesus could have done this potentially or this this miracle publicly. He could have said, Hey, look, there's no more wine. I'm the Messiah. Hey, I'm gonna change this water into wine. Everybody stand around these six purification jars and the hocus pocus in there, okay? Oh, that's that's spectacular. But Jesus, this was a quiet miracle. Uh the only people that knew it was Mary and the servants and the disciples. At the core of this quiet miracle was Jesus protecting a man's honor, preserving his face, guarding uh, the joy of that occasion, and keeping the groom from experiencing shame. And when, when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, uh, it says that they... Knew that they were naked. They realized that they were naked, and that's an expression of shame that they've been uncovered. You know, guilt is like I have done something wrong, but shame is something is wrong with me, that I am flawed in some deep way. You know, many of us will work and sweat and overextend ourselves because we don't want to be found out. <laughs> uh, We study hard and uh, we might work on our appearance and we do some extreme things because we know there's something flawed within us and we don't want to be exposed. And Jesus, he understands shame. He understands that and he gets involved. You know, Psalm Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me. From all my fears. Those who look to him already, their faces are never covered with shame. One of the things that the Redeemer does, the Savior does, he comes to cover our shame and to remove our shame. And so we find that Jesus comes to do this. And he enters into this celebration and he supports this groom in this moment. He redeems this this wedding party that could have gone poorly. You know, Jesus, he invests and he celebrates with people in their their hardships. Uh, I remember Steve Stahl. Steve Stahl was one of the first members of Faith Christian Fellowship back in the early 80s. He was, actually, he was at the first worship service that we attended. Steve is the guy standing behind me. uh, And Steve Steve uh, was the first deacon in this church. Uh, He had a memory that he could remember everybody that came to every occasion. And he knew all the stats of the Orioles. It was amazing. But Steve struggled eventually with uh, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. And in a moment of weakness, uh, he took his life. But Steve lived with us for a while on Greenmount Avenue in an apartment. And I never forget when we celebrated Steve's birthday, we had the cake and we had the candles and we would you know, sing happy birthday to Steve. And Of course, a lot of us wait for the wish and the candles to be blown out, but Steve didn't want to blow the candles out. He just wanted to watch the candles burn until they burned all the way down into the cake and then just expired. And so we all just sat there <laughs> affirming, you know, Steve's particular orientation to the birthday celebration. And as that, those candles took all that time to, like, burn down and burn away, you know, I could, you could see the smile on Steve's face. For him, savoring that moment, cherishing a moment of celebration was a really important event for him. And I think how sad it is, uh, and I wondered, how many birthdays had Steve had beforehand that he had those birthdays all alone, and that nobody wished him happy birthday, and it just went past. And there's a lot of people that that happens to, that nobody wishes them a happy birthday. Nobody knows that they had a birthday. And how important it is that we, as God's people, Celebrate and dignify a person's life and affirm them. And Jesus, he's at this party, and he affirms, and he covers the shame, and he protects the groom's honor in the midst of this. So Jesus, he comes party ready. He is the party redeemer, but he brings the party best. And so the master tastes the wine that now, uh, the water that now became wine. He didn't know where it came from. And he goes to the bridegroom, he says, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine, the best wine until now. And so Jesus has changed this wine, and the interesting thing about these, there's these six purification jars, they're stone jars versus the, that they were uh, made out of clay, which can be Contaminated, but stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons, and there's six of which means that there's, you know, somewhere between 120, 150 gallons of wine. Which, if you, if there's four bottles uh, in a gallon, right? How many bottles is that, mathematicians? A lot of wine. This is a whole bunch of wine. You know, the, the Mishnah has 126 books or chapters uh, of rabbinical laws around purification. There's 30 chapters just dealing with purification. So, purification was a huge deal in the Jewish culture. And so, that's why these stone jars of water existed to clean the furniture, to clean the utensils, all the cleansing that took place. What Jesus did was actually a pretty radical thing. This purification, water, he transforms. And in many ways, Jesus is saying, the old is gone, the new has come. This is the new wine. It's no longer the rigid rules of man's uh, religious acts to try to please God. It is now the wine of joy, of God's celebration. He has come to redeem all things. Uh, Richard Crashall said the water that became the best wine is that the conscious water saw its God and blushed. And so we see this abundance. We see this abundance of celebration. That Jesus comes uh, to bring life and to bring it to the full. You know, Jesus never does anything halfway. And he brings and he changes this water not that just decent wine or good wine. Or, you know, something that would do, but it's the best wine. It's it's the highest form of wine. I have a daughter, Melissa, who worked at the Ruth Chris uh, Steakhouse for over ten years. And uh, which is high fine dining, something that Ray and I would not occasion to. Occasionally, we would go on restaurant week when it was discounting. You also would find Ravens players at uh, this the Ruth Chris Steakhouse. But uh, Melissa was just a great waitress, uh, and with her esteem and her experience, uh, it was like a heavenly moment to be served by her. And I remember one time when we came, I don't know if it was our anniversary, but uh, she brought out different bottles of wine for us to taste. And they were different levels of wine. She told me later that you could buy a bottle of wine anywhere from $100 up to $1,000, which is ridiculous. (laughs) And I didn't know those prices then. But she had us taste these wines, and she wanted to see if we, if I could detect, you know, the value. And of course, you know, I tried to be sophisticated at the moment. You know, I, you know, detect the color. You know, try to see the different tones and of uh, color, and the rubiness of the wine. Then so, you, know, you smell that wine. You know, you swirl it around in the glass. Uh, you look for a fullness of its fragrance. Uh, can you detect some floral or some fruity scent? Maybe, maybe it's that black currant or maybe there's a scent of apricot that I detect. And then you taste the wine. Of course, tasting the wine, you, know, you linger it on your tongue. And maybe you can, maybe taste a scent of oak or maybe there's a burst of walnut or maybe a touch of licorice. Does it prickle? Or does it feel smooth and silky and velvety? And so we tried these wines. And, uh, and so the wine that I thought was the best wine was the worst, cheapest wine. <laughs> Which, you know, I am not, you know, good wines wasted on me. But this wine, this wine that this, this uh Ceremonial Master tasted Was the finest wine It was like it shocked him that, that the groom Would bring out this best wine At this point This was so over the top It was unbelievable But this is the way Jesus works This is the way Our Savior operates And we find that Jesus is Giving a kind of a picture He's like opening heaven. A little bit, a little peak of heaven in this moment. Isaiah twenty-five that we heard reads about on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. You know, it's, what is that? That's amazing. You know, we have about a thousand taste buds. I understand we have these little small receptors that can detect uh, the different different taste. And uh, as we age, apparently they get worse and they (laughs) die off. How many receptors, sensories, do we presently have? It's probably just minuscule, but in heaven, they'll be all alive. We'll be able to detect unbelievable tastes and colors and see. I mean, the heaven that we have waiting for us is unbelievable. And so the water was turned into wine. And Jesus, when he talked to his mother, uh, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And in this moment of this celebration of this banquet, Jesus is alluding to something. And we find in the whole movement of, of John as it unfolds that the hour that Jesus is talking about is the hour of his arrest and his crucifixion. He's talking about his death, and Jesus raises the nature of his mission and where he's going. And here, Jesus takes the water of purification and he changes it into the finest wine. That in the midst of this great celebration, Jesus is experiencing a deep sorrow. And that deep sorrow was what he was going to face. But he faced that deep sorrow that we might face an everlasting joy. And this table represents for us the undying love of our Lord. He took our shame. He took the groom's shame that we might never experience that shame ever. And so Jesus takes on uh, our guilt and he takes on our curse so that we could experience an everlasting joy. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. Who is this table for? It's for anyone who has claimed Christ, who has confessed their sins, who has said, I need a savior. I cannot save myself. And if you have done that, and you've confessed your sins, and you're seeking to walk in obedience and repentance, then he welcomes you to this table. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to withhold And to pray that God would reveal himself to you, we would be happy and honored to talk to you more how you can know this Christ himself. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us these signs, real signs. Lord, you know that uh, we, our hearts are often hardened to the realities of your goodness and your truth and your love for us and how we need constant reminders. And so we thank you for calling us to this supper and this table to be physically reminded of your undying love for us. And so, God, we pray that you would use this moment as a means of grace to strengthen us. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, eat in remembrance of me. In like manner, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, Drink of this in remembrance of me.